I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my thoughts on money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. My name is Trevor Cummings, your host of the podcast, and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. We are doing something new today. We are moving our office to a different floor, and the grand opening is on Monday. So we're going to attempt to record today's podcast on Zoom. So you'll have to bear with us. But it is such a, what I think, potentially controversial topic that I wanted to bring Sean and Leslie in um, so that we could riff on this because it was hard or difficult to cover this topic in a thousand words on the blog article. So welcome to the podcast, guys. Welcome to Zoom podcast. Hello. 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 Happy Friday, Zoom podcast. (laughs) Well, Leslie, I will actually let me give some background for our listeners. So the subject I wrote about this week uh, was something that I've been thinking about a lot. And I've sprinkled in this subject or topic in a few of the articles recently. But it's this idea of how do you design a portfolio? And I'm big on this idea that the design of the portfolio should be absolutely connected and married to the financial plan. Sometimes when I say the word financial plan, people think of this 100-page printout that's bound that their advisor gives them. Uh, that then becomes kind of a paperweight at their house that collects dust. That's not what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about financial planning, I'm talking about all the money decisions that you need to make and this living document that's a collaborative discussion with you and your advisor. So we begin to understand this idea of what financial planning is. What I'm going to transition now to, and, and I would love your guys' opinion, is how does one go about designing a portfolio? I gave background of two different styles that I see a lot in the industry. One of those styles is building a portfolio solely based on somebody's age. And the other style is building a portfolio solely based on somebody's risk profile. Um, and I will tee that off to you, Leslie, to kind of have you speak to that and what you've seen. Uh, and then maybe you can give some of your opinions from reading the article. Like I said, I know this is a controversial topic. I know you're really involved in uh, multiple financial planning groups and um things like that. So I would love to get your input. Of course. So after reading your article, I had some thinking to do. um, And I was uh, reminding myself that, yes, you have the age-based approach. And that's a function also of some, a portion of our profession is not giving advice. They are more transaction-based or um, they just help people save for their 401ks, but they are not really clients per se. And the planner is not going to look at all of their entire life. So the age base is a proxy that could help a majority of people. Um, if you're not working with an advisor and if, you, um, if you're by yourself, it, it's better than nothing, I would say. But I don't really God, like the age based approach. Yeah, and let me let me pull on that thread a little bit. So what you're saying is the age-based approach becomes a good proxy, but the reason you need that proxy is because there's not a continuing relationship with an advisor and client. So you would say it's not the best solution. It's not the best solution. I don't like this approach because it assumes that as people get older, their portfolio needs to be more conservative and young people don't need to have a conservative portfolio. However, everyone is different, have different goals. So if, for example, I'm saving to buy a house in two years and you put me in the S&P 500 or in an equity, um, it could be too risky for that pot of money. I may need to have that saved in a very conservative investment. So I have access to that money to 
I have a down payment on my home. Now you have older people um, that gets toward retirement and usually the age-based approach is to have them being more conservative with less volatility. Another issue with that is it could be too conservative for them and they, their portfolio doesn't generate enough uh, return to keep up with their lifestyle in retirement. So that's why I don't really like this approach. Um, I said, I see the positive of it for people that are not working with an advisor and for a temporary solution, maybe. Good. And it's kind of interesting the words that you used, um, because I think both of us uh, are somewhat indoctrinated by our industry that we freely use that word risk and conservative. Um, that means absolutely something specific to us and, and very mathematical. But I think for our listeners, it means something different, right? Mm -hmm. When we say the word conservative, if we're doing a word association game, Sean, what do you think when somebody here is conservative? That uh, they're risk adverse. They don't want the money to go down. Yeah. And they're, they, they, maybe the word they would think of is safe, comfortable, exactly. um, yeah. fluid. Um, so the, the, what we mean when we say it is probably different what, than what they perceive. And I talked about that a little bit in articles that when we use the word risk, um, most people's brain triggers to things like skydiving or car racing or yeah. gambling. <laughs> um, and that's okay. That's how we use it in everyday language. Um, but then when it comes to this little finance bubble, we use the same word, but we expect people to understand it a little bit of a different way. Um, Sean, what was your thought on the, the risk survey only approach? Yeah, I think it's a, a big reason that people have the opinions they do of it is because when those theories were uh, created, it was in a different time. You know, interest rates were higher and you could generate more income through a more conservative approach. So it was probably a lot easier for people to use some sort of age-based risk questionnaire that gave them, like Leslie said, not a perfect solution, but something close that could serve the masses and still generate enough income for them to retire comfortably. Well, we are in a different time now where you can't go get four or 5% through a CDs at the bank and generate enough income with social security to live, go right off in the sunset. You might be able to, and that's why everyone's different. But I, I think that uh, the way that people did financial planning 30 years ago is going to be very different the way we do it now. Uh, that's the first point. The second point that it makes me think of is when people are trying to pick and we've talked about this before, but when they're trying to pick a category that they fall in, you're right. They have different opinions on different words. So they may hear conservative and think safe, and they may think of it as investing as risky. And well, there's no way that I'm going to make a good investment by being safe. And they might look at it the other say, way and say, well, I don't want to say aggressive because that reminds me of skydiving or, you know, maybe some sort of uh, gambling. And I don't want to gamble because this is my nest egg and I need it to last the rest of my life. So most people find themselves to be in the middle of the road. They like the word balance. They like the word uh, uh, risk-adjusted return or safe, but not too aggressive. Moderate. Moderate, yeah, exactly. And I think that that sticks with people because it's just, it's the path of least resistance. It's the easiest to say. And then unfortunately, our industry sir, does try to serve the masses. And so they try to make a one-size-fits-all that does not make sense for a lot of people. Yeah, I agree with you. That's why I wrote the article. Um, and I'm going to bring that back to you, Leslie. So if we're all in agreement on, on this call that, um, one, um, the age alone isn't a way to build a good portfolio. Two, risk survey alone is not a good way to build the portfolio. And I'm actually going to elaborate on that. When I say risk survey alone, I mean that somebody takes a 10-question survey, and that is the only source that somebody uses to design a portfolio. 
Does that mean I'm not a big believer in risk surveys? No, I, I use them. I use them religiously. Um, it, it's how I use them, though. I use them as a launch point to have a discussion with a client. There's no wrong answer for me in a risk survey. It's just a place where we can start to have a conversation about what your experiences are with investing, uh, what you liked, what you didn't like, and what your comfortability is um, with the expected volatility and things like that. But it is not the, the last piece to design and build a portfolio. So I'm going to pose this question to you guys. Um, I know you already read the article, but if you didn't, if we throw out the age-based method and we throw out the risk survey alone method, what other methods out there? Uh, Leslie, I'll go first. Is that okay? I don't know if this is a method, but I would say that, that the one word that always sticks out to me the most when I was reading Tom and when I think of different investment strategies is liquidity. And I don't look at necessarily liquidity like investments or you know, a non-traded REIT and you can't get access to your principal, but liquidity is what type of assets would you want to use to cover unknown expenses or an emergency or something like that. And I, I think it ties in well with the article because if you have two different people that have completely different balance sheets and one is much larger than the other, well, the larger balance sheet can probably afford uh, less liquidity. And what I mean by that is they could probably have more assets that are invested in assets that they wouldn't need to sell to cover a short-term expense or that they wouldn't need to redeem or even think about for a longer time frame, which may give them uh, investment options that have less liquidity, but uh, hopefully better returns in the long run. Now, if you go back to the first person, their balance sheet might be much more conservative because the assets they do have, they do need that liquidity for short-term expenses. Leslie, what do you think? Well, when I think about this debate, it makes me think about what we uh, discussed last week about inflation and that that is you have different methods, but they all like something which is context, the client's situation. So to me, I always have to come back around the conversation with the client. What is their particular situations, their goals? Why are we investing this money? Because at the end of the day, money is a tool to allow people to achieve their goals in life. So why why are we investing this money? Why are we expecting it to do that? Why, what do we want to do with this money? So that's uh, always the conversation. And we use the other pieces like a risk survey and maybe other, uh, other pieces of information to do a complete picture and decide on an allocation. But um, I always try to remind myself that risk surveys are a point of time and so the person will take that questionnaire and the responses will depend on their mood that day or maybe their concerns on that day. And so depending on their specific situation at that point, we can't base their entire portfolio going forward on that point in time. We have to have a conversation with the client. We have to have an overall picture. That makes sense to me. Um, I'm going to challenge you a little bit. Uh, and I want to remind our listeners, uh, you are a certified financial planner. And uh, you're not client facing, but you are involved, like I mentioned earlier, uh, through different organizations like SPA and, and Thinkture, where you these kind of small group things where people are on the kind of cutting edge of, of what's new in financial planning. So if I was, a, let's, let's do a hypothetical, you guys there. Uh, and I'm a client and I'm coming to you or a potential client. Um, and you're describing to me how you use all these inputs to design a financial plan. It makes sense. But is there anything out there that you've read or understood that kind of codifies that process 
Um, and I've read a little bit about the bucket strategies. I have some critique on that, um, but maybe you could kind of tell us a, a little bit of what's out there that's actually formalized or, or created into some sort of method that uh, is packaged and understandable. So my understanding is that every firm does it a little bit differently. So you have those risk surveys that most of us use, and then you have firms that design their own way of going through um, those conversations with clients to design plans, uh, sorry, to design portfolios. So you have some firms that design a portfolio before they talk about a financial plan, and they do that through conversation on risk and behaviors. So they will look more of the, uh, the client's behavior. And then you have firms that use, like you said, the bucket strategy, which is um, separating the client's assets into different buckets of money, depending on short-term goals, mid-term and long-term. So for example, long-term goals, um, the clients won't need to withdraw the money right away so it can be invested a little more aggressively because it would have uh, more time to recover if something happens in the market. Um, And then the short-term bucket will be invested very conservatively so um, that money is not subject to volatility and the client has access to it. So you have, um, I've seen firms do it very differently. Every firm has their own practice, their own system around it. But overall, good financial planning firms always um, come back to the discussion with the clients and the goals. So it's always based around um, the client's goals and it changes their allocation can change over time as well so someone my age for example i'm not planning on taking money out of my portfolio right now or maybe invested more aggressively but it will change over time i will have different goals i will need uh, to invest differently depending on um what i want to do what i what i want to do with this money does that make sense it makes sense to me uh my challenge against the bucket strategy is usually it's building buckets based on this is where I'll spend in the next one to two years, mm-hmm. uh, three to five years, uh, seven plus or whatever, however they um, basically do that allocation uh, split up. Uh, why I don't like that is because typically the volatile assets get pushed out to use into the future. And me being a believer in dividend growth strategy, I actually am okay with you spending income from the dividends on assets that are volatile. So in the bucket strategy, that would end up in the, I'm going to spend this money in 10 years. In my strategy, I'm saying I would spend that money today. Um, So it would be in my right now bucket, even though the actual prices tend to be volatile. And and if if that's confusing to anybody, you're welcome to reach out, tcummings at thebonsagroup.com. I'd I'd be happy to discuss that further. But let me transition a little bit to kind of the strategy that I'm introducing in, in this article. Um, and you guys can challenge me. Uh, I'm op- open to that. I'm convinced that we're going down a path of a better way or a better method on how to discuss this with clients and how to design portfolios that are married to the financial plan. In the article, I call this expense-based planning. For short, I called it EBP. Um, and there was two things that were really unique to EBP. One, um, that it was solely based, not solely, maybe it's not the right way to say it, one that it was anchored to a client's expenses, and I'll explain to that. And then two, it is designed with safety nets in mind. So here's what I mean by that. Most financial plans are trying to solve for one thing, 
how do I cover future living expenses with this large nest egg that I have today? That's not every financial plan, but I'll tell you that's like 98% of them. So because of that, um, this expense-based planning method looks at what are your actual expenses. And in the article, I mentioned a quote from David Bonson. I remember years ago, he told me this. He said, I've met individuals with $10 million that were poor, and I've met individuals with a million dollars that were wealthy. What he was inferring is it wasn't the balance sheet that defines wealth. It was the balance sheet in relation to somebody's lifestyle or expenses. So when I hear that statement, it reminds me that expenses are at the nucleus of financial planning. So let's just make up an example. Let's say somebody has $2 million and their expenses are $100,000 a year. If I was using this expense-based planning method, all of my allocations would be measured according to how many years of expenses are covered in this asset allocation. Everything would hinge back on expenses and would be related to expenses. The second part I talked about was safety nets. We use that word conservative a lot. And we say, this person's conservative, this person's moderate, this person's aggressive. I want to argue that we've used that term incorrectly. Because sometimes you can build a conservative portfolio, like all cash, and it will fail somebody's financial plan because they can't afford to have all cash. So in my book, that's a risk. That's not conservative. What I think conservative is, is having these redundancies. We've talked about them before. These multiple safety nets to make sure if some bad thing happened, that you could lean on this um, to protect you in, in tough times. Um, I'm being a little bit long-winded, so I'll shore this up to say, uh, I talked about if somebody builds a building, they're required by regulation to have multiple fire exits. Why? Because one fire exit's not good enough. What if something happened where the building was burning and something fell and you can't exit there? You need to come up with an alternate strategy to solve for that. So they have multiple fire exits. A financial plan is the same way. I talked about four safety nets. Safety net number one, you having an emergency fund with some multiple expenses in cash. Not that that would be replaced with an annuity or um, conservative bonds. No, that's just cash. So whether you're an investor that wants to have six months, 12 months, or 24 months, you need to understand how much cash you have relative to your expenses. Safety net number one. Safety net number two is you go one notch up the risk spectrum. You start to buy conservative bonds. You start to buy things like government treasuries, investment grade corporate bonds, uh, mortgage-backed securities that are held in this safety net number two as a multiple of expenses, right? Another three to four years of expenses might be held there. What does this start to mean? Is that if you hit a catastrophic time where you needed to draw resources from a safe place, you all of a sudden have like three to five years that are covered. When you go transition to safety net number three, which is a safety net I don't think you'll ever need to tap, I talked about the importance of having a line of credit, another third redundancy, a backup plan. Safety net number four, and I'll encourage you to read the article, was about making a portfolio that produces enough income to cover somebody's expenses. So in my book, that's a conservative investor. You built four fire exits there in case something bad happens. I, I just did way too much talking all at once. So I want to transition the baton pass over to you, Sean. And what was your interpretation of that? Or uh, I'm open to criticism. What do you have for me? Yeah, at first glance, I, I think that the strategy in a way is similar to what some would call a bucket strategy because the the thesis is the same. The thought process is if something were to happen, 
because the bucket strategy, you're right, it's more of short-term expenses go towards this, um, mid-term expenses go towards this, three to five years. But I, I think there is a, also an idea that there is some sort of emergency bucket as well. So I think this does align with that slightly. But I, I like the way that you presented it that, because earlier in the podcast, you said like, hey, if someone had an emergency, I'd be fine with them taking income from the portfolio. And my first thought in the back of my mind was, well, don't we want that income to be reinvesting and to increase the total return of the portfolio, which is true. But then you just kind of laid out, that would be the real worst case scenario, because that means they've exhausted their emergency funds, they've exhausted their boring bond allocation, and they've used their line of credit or any type of lending vehicle that is cost efficient. And then that would really be the last case scenario. Um, hearing it that way did make me feel a lot better. So I was going to give you a pushback, but it makes sense. No, but let me let me challenge that a little bit anyway. So what if it's a retiree, Sean? Like, where is it an emergency when they're drawing that income from the dividends and interest? Well, it depends on what stage of life they're in. If they're accumulating, then I would think that's a big time emergency. If they're I'm telling you, if it's, uh, what, what if it's a retiree? No. Well, if so they're already retired, then it's not. It's normal, right? Right. So in the bucket strategy, though, and Leslie, you're welcome to correct me. I've always understood it that people spend down the bucket accordingly to what year they are. So they spend down the one to three year bucket, then they spend down the four to six year bucket and so on and so forth. Why that doesn't work for me is I'm saying I want to resource the volatile assets for income because I believe that that income is stable. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think we are looking at... uh different types of clients and we try to put it all in one and it doesn't fit you have different if you're talking about uh, an accumulator is different than someone that's spending money from the portfolio then you shift gears and you do it a little different um, yeah I, I agree with you it depends on somebody's stage of life and how we figure that all out but what I'm trying to do is trying to give clients a little bit more clarity around the design process. I think what, what people's interpretation for, from folks that I've talked to is they're like, so I filled out this one risk survey when like, like you were saying, Leslie, like I was a little hang hung over that day or <laughs> I was a little emotional and, and all of a sudden my entire life savings is going to be directed by my opinion. Like I'm not the professional, but, but by, by my opinion, this thing's going to be designed or somebody else might say, wait, you're just going to throw me into a bucket of every other 62-year-old owns this exact same portfolio, that there's nothing unique about my financial plan and what I want to achieve that separates me from my neighbor on my left and my right. Um, and, and that's where I'm trying to go down a path of saying, hey, it's never going to be a perfect science. And, and I don't want somebody to take this article to kind of figure out, oh, now let me go ahead and execute a plan off these little tidbits that Trevor gave me. No, but I think if you tell clients, hey, let's look at all your assets in relation to your expenses as a multiple, it's like a huge paradigm shift for them, right? When, when you talk to a client that historically has had, you know, 50% of their portfolio in what we call boring bonds, and then they do the math and realize that's 23 years worth of their expenses. And they're like, okay, wow, that's a little bit of a perspective changer for me. I agree. I think it, it makes sense, especially with today's environment with returns on bonds versus equity. It's a very important conversation and mind shift that clients need to realize or that we need to bring to the clients. Um, and I think a lot of firms are actually working through that process at this time. I see in my study groups and others. Um, 
So this is an interesting, uh, timely conversation we're having. Yeah, I mean, I hope you share this with your uh, colleagues because uh, it would be fun to give people feedback. But again, uh, the premise of it is just let's measure everything against expenses because expenses are the most important thing when it comes to a financial plan. It's not the only thing. I'm just saying it's the most important thing. Yeah, good, a good data point to have uh, with other other uh, data points as well, but it is very important. I agree. Yeah, this is true. We, we've talked about it in past episodes where people carry a lot of cash as like a just-in-case fund. And then when you pull on that thread a little bit and ask, you know, what, what type of scenario would you come home and need to write a check for hundreds of thousands of dollars? And then they, as they think about it, it, it reminds me of that paradigm shift you were describing. They start to realize that there isn't a scenario that they have to come home and cover that one-time expense. It's typically something disrupted cash flow, and the real need is uh, something to cover expenses. And I think this fits that. Yeah, I think you're right, and and I think it's it's our fault. It's the industry's fault. Um, we've built these uh, definitions around words, around risk, around being conservative, around like me and Sean joke around about this. But Sean, what's a retirement portfolio? What allocation? Sixty forty. Yeah, 60% stocks and 40% bonds. Like right. that isn't so ingrained in our industry, um, but that's divorced from somebody's expenses. So maybe that's not. You know, one thing I, I just kind of thought of is I was thinking about this a few weeks ago when we were talking about just overall allocation of risk. The industry has done it to itself, I think on purpose as well, because when you have a balanced portfolio, it almost gives you an excuse, not an excuse that necessarily that you're lagging in performance, but an excuse that performance was diluted because you are more, uh, you do have more conservative investments. And so if you think about it, like let's say you're an advisor and you have client A who is maybe using this type of portfolio that may have uh, more exposure to equities. And then you have another client that's more in a 60-40. And let's say the market has a large correction. In that given sample size, unless the first client really understands the portfolio and understands how they're invested and what type of volatility and has a good expectation set, they may look at it like their portfolio is underperforming client B who's in a 60, 40 and maybe more conservative. So just a thought. So maybe, yeah. maybe advisors do it. Maybe it's just been easier in the finance industry as like a, a CYA that, Hey, this is their age. They said they're a moderate. I put them in a 60, 40 and now, I can kind of sit back and not worry about it. This was based on older research. And unfortunately, our industry is pretty recent. The financial planning industry itself is about 30-year-old only. And so it was based on older research and they never moved on. Uh, so they kept that as the baseline. And a lot of um, financial planners or advisors just kept that model, even though now the the bond environment is changing, everything is changing around us in the economy. So we need to adapt this strategy. You're exactly right. And I think we have a little bit more freedom to have this conversation because our portfolios as designed by our chief investment officer and our philosophy that um, permeates all of our portfolios is on income, right? We manage dividend growth strategies. What Leslie is talking about, if you go back to modern portfolio theory and Harry Markowitz and the efficient frontier and all these pieces, you're controlling for volatility because you don't want to have to sell assets at depressed prices to cover expenses. What we're saying on this conversation is 
dividend growth can solve for that, right? When you have consistent, sustainable growing income that doesn't have that same volatility profile as stock prices, that can change the makeup and design of a portfolio. And if you add on to that three, four safety nets to protect you for those potential times, you all of a sudden are getting to the same solution without some sort of generic portfolio. Um, and I think, Sean, you spoke to a good point to say there are multiple reasons, right? That, um, you know, Harry Markowitz, the, the father of uh, modern portfolio theory, did all this work to figure out how to find the optimal portfolio. And then he has an interview where they say, hey, how do you invest your own money? He's like, well, I have 50% stocks and 50% bonds. And they're like, why? And he's like, because if stocks are down, I'm glad I have 50% bonds. And if <laughs> stocks are up, I'm glad I have 50% stocks. So he turns it into this like total behavioral thing, which is okay too. I, I think that that's why we do the risk survey because we want to have a conversation, like Sean said, around expectations. What are the potential downsides? What will somebody experience? Right, Laying out the fact that uncertainty is a reality, but if you expect uncertainty, it can be a little bit more settling. So I think the behavioral part definitely has to be a factor. I just think our industry has gone way too aggressive to say, Mr. or Mrs. Client, I need to protect you from yourself. So I am not going to let you have a portfolio that looks like this. And the challenge I would have is, you know, our firm, we manage a, a significant amount of money, two and a half billion dollars of client assets. And March 23rd, the stock market, I'm not saying our portfolio, the stock market uh, from peak to trough was down 36%. All of us on the phone have game film of how clients reacted. We know the content that David Bonson produced. We know the conversations that we had. Our clients did great. Our clients weathered that storm. When I say great, I'm saying they did great um, behaviorally. Uh, and the way that that happens is because you have lots of conversations around expectations. And I think that type of game film should be a factor when somebody's thinking about how to design a portfolio. Yes, this is also why it's nice to work with a financial advisor um, because you have an accountability partner and someone that can go through that journey with you. Yes, I agree. And man, uh, my mouth is dry because I did way more talking today than... Um, <laughs> I usually do. And maybe I was on a pedestal uh, fighting for this uh, EVP strategy <laughs> that uh, I want to indoctrinate you guys in. Nonetheless, uh, this is the type of conversation that could uh, elicit a lot of questions. So please do email us. Uh, we have a really simple email address. It's tom, T-O-M, at thebonsagroup.com. You can address that to Leslie or Sean or Trevor. Uh, all three of us would be happy to answer questions. These are conversations we like to have. Um, one of the things I mentioned in the article is that it's really interesting that these three different methods I introduced could actually produce three different portfolios for the exact same person. So part of the journey of the process is just going through these different methods, looking at the outcomes and having conversations around what the differences are. So that is all I have for you today. I will wrap us up. And then of course, uh, we want to ask that you rate the podcast, leave comments, um, positive or negative. We're, uh, we're, we're happy with any sort of feedback and uh, we will be back next week with more of our, Thoughts on money. Oh, that wasn't synchronized very well. All right, guys. 
Avancing Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.